This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Good afternoon, you're listening to the Daily Digest on The Bigger Picture with me, T. Ik and Lim Su And So today we're talking about um, education again. Uh, there's been quite a lot of focus on education this week and uh, we're looking specifically at uh, a certain group of children. So according to the UNHCR, COVID-19 has led to the greatest disruption of education in history, affecting 1.6 billion learners and that includes millions of young refugees. So today we want to look at how the pandemic has affected refugees students' access to education and how one local NGO is looking for community solutions to tackle this problem right here in Malaysia. And you have, and if you have any thoughts you'd like to share with us, you can, as always, tweet us at BFM Radio or send in a WhatsApp at 018-789-8899. Yes, so last Sunday marked International Day of Education and the theme for this year was Recover and Revitalize Education for the COVID-19 Generation. And it called for renewed and increased collaboration and international solidarity in placing education and lifelong learning at the centre of the recovery from this pandemic. So it's been well documented that the COVID-19 outbreak is also causing a major education crisis, not just a health crisis, Mm. right? Also um, problems with education and it's having a pretty severe effect on the lives of school-aged children. So UN figures show that 1.6 billion learners across the world, including millions of refugees, have had their education disrupted as a result of this pandemic. And uh, we've covered many topics related to this education crisis across BFM. Uh, on the Daily Digest on Monday, we spoke to Kula Retnam Vijay Kumar, a Teach for Malaysia alumni, about um, education disparities and access issues in Malaysia, what we can do about it moving forward. And uh, if you missed that, you can search for the podcast, which is titled Bridging the Gap, Ending High Stakes Exams, on our website, bfm.my, or on the BFM app to listen to that. Mm. And you know, while children in every country have struggled with the impact of COVID-19, Refugee children have been particularly disadvantaged and this is what we want to focus on today, especially with regard to their access to education. So according to the UN uh, Refugee Agency or UNHCR as it's commonly known, adapting to the limitations imposed by COVID-19 has been especially tough for the 85% of the world's refugees who live in developing countries and that includes um, you know, the refugee community here in Malaysia. Mobile phones, lap- uh, laptops, tablets, good connectivity, affordable data and even radio sets are not uh, often not readily available to these displaced communities. But researchers and aid organisations are learning some valuable lessons from the pandemic. So ensuring that children, especially those who are already displaced, continue to learn during a pandemic required resourcefulness, innovation, invention, and of course, collaboration. Mm. And across the world, there were several examples of all this, all of these qualities coming together to ensure that you know vulnerable ch- refugee children still had access to educational opportunities. Yeah, and one example we came across was from Kenya, where teacher Amina Hassan turned to radio broadcasting to teach her students in the Dadaab refugee camp in uh, something that's dubbed one of the world's more unusual phone-in radio shows. Amina actually took to the airwaves to broadcast lessons to her grade five class on a community station that's called Radio Gaga, meaning uh, that that word Gaga 
means help or assistance mm. in Somali. So the students would call her at the studio to ask questions. And even though she couldn't see them, Amina really felt that they were learning and they were staying connected with her and also continuing with their studies. So that's really an example of using what you have, right? Yes. It's not just Zoom classes or video calls with your students. Because but obviously that's not accessible to them. But hey, right. good old radio still works. <laughs> yes. Um, another example that caught our eye was from Bolivia where the Aula Mobile or Mobile Classroom Project was kicked off where staff from organisations working with Venezuelan refugee and migrant children brought learning to the children instead of the other way around. So staff uh, involved in the project were dressed in personal protective equipment from head to foot uh, and taught the children dancing, singing, painting and also how to protect themselves from the coronavirus. So the service functioned as an informal classroom for refugee children and their families and this gives them an important outlet for their energy and creativity. Mm. And of course, being in quarantine has generated anxiety and stress among the population, which is why, you know, the volunteers developed these activities to, pro- to provide some psychosocial support and engagement for the Venezuelan community. Yeah, which just goes to show that learning and these kinds of um, uh, engagement isn't just about delivering lessons to mm. children. It's uh, so much more than that. It's it's this kind of psychosocial support that they can access as well. Now, let's take a look at the situation for refugees in Malaysia. Just for some context, Malaysia remains a non-signatory country to the 1951 Refugee Convention and its 1967 Protocol. So there is an absence of a national legal framework for refugees and asylum seekers. Basically, Malaysian law does not recognise refugees or asylum seekers. Um, It lumps them in a broad definition of illegal immigrants and uh, accords them little legal protection. So according to a report by the uh, Institute of Strategic and International Studies or ISIS Malaysia, as of June 2020, there were some uh, 100, well, over 170,000 refugees and asylum seekers registered with UNHCR in Malaysia. And in fact, the actual number is uh, certainly higher and it could possibly be anywhere between 150,000 to 400,000. Now, most of the refugees are from Myanmar, with some having been here for three or four generations. Um, UNHCR resettlement rates to third countries have also dropped in recent years and Malaysia has evolved um, from being a transit state to being a final destination for some refugees, in particular the Rohingya. Mm. And according to Thomas Daniel and Ariane Jeffrey, who are the authors of that report you mentioned, Shawik, the lack of a proper refugee policy in Malaysia, coupled with stakeholders often working in silos, this has led to the Malaysian government securitizing the portrayal and management of refugees and asylum seekers throughout the pandemic. So this has created a vicious cycle of sorts. It has encouraged negative public sentiment towards these groups amongst Malaysians, which in turn has only encouraged policymakers to continue taking a tougher approach towards refugees and asylum seekers. And the report by ISIS Malaysia also states that COVID-19 has emphasised that refugees cannot be addressed under a singular security, economic, social or humanitarian lens. The issues impacting these groups and their overall implications to our national interests need to be collectively and comprehensively studied. And one of these issues is of course access to education. As we know, refugee children in Malaysia are denied access to the formal education system. They're actually only able to obtain an education through an informal parallel system of about 128 community-based learning centres in the country. Mm. So for a large number of refugees, access to higher education is blocked by many barriers as well. And this includes the lack of access to educational programmes due to the inability to provide identification documentation, lack of economic resources, lack of recognition 
of previous educational qualifications, that this is just to name a few, you know. And without basic tertiary qualifications, many young adult refugees are forced to take up uh, men- menial jobs in the informal sector, exposing them to exploitative labour conditions. Something that we've heard a lot about yes. during this pandemic as well, uh, which makes them very vulnerable. And uh, according to UNHCR Malaysia, there are over 150,000 people of concern, where over 5,000 are under the age of 18 and over 23,000 of school-going ages. Um, of the um, over 23,000 that are of school-going ages, um, only 30% of them are enrolled in community learning centres. Now, that's a lot of issues facing a community that's already at a disadvantage, right? Now, you throw in a pandemic mm. and the challenge seem almost insurmountable. But, well, challenging times call for creative measures and that is what organisations like the Dignity for Children Foundation here in Malaysia have done. Um, they have devised local solutions for local problems. Yep, so they have implemented a programme called the Community Classroom, which is their small way of, to continue um, bringing education to the grassroots, particularly to the refugee communities here in Malaysia. So Community Classroom works on the concept of empowering community educators to teach refugee children in the community, um, truly adopting the Kita Jaga Kita sentiment, mm. which has been a rallying cry for many to help each other through this pandemic. Yes, so we're going to take a quick break and after that, we're going to come back and speak to Fadlin Linsai, who is the project coordinator of this community classroom and we're going to find out more about how they are trying to solve this issue of a lack of access to education for refugee children. So stay tuned for that. This is the Daily Digest on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to the Daily Digest on the Bigger Picture. It's T. Xiao Ik and Lim Su, and um, in the studio with you today. Before the break, we were discussing how the pandemic is severely affecting the lives of school-aged children, especially those in forcibly displaced communities around the world. And um, the situation is no different for refugee communities in Malaysia. And um, you know they were already facing challenges such as a lack of access to formal public education even prior to the pandemic. Mm, but one organisation that has been uh, quite working to address this issue is the Dignity for Children Foundation who through their community classroom initiative want to empower community educators to teach refugee children as we continue to battle the COVID-19 pandemic and all its subsequent fallouts. Um, So joining us now to share more about this initiative is Fadlin Linsai, the the project's coordinator. Welcome Fadlin, thanks for speaking with us. So to start off with, can you briefly remind us about the work that the Dignity for Children Foundation carries out? Well, Dignity for Children Foundation is a learning center. We provide quality education for uh, children ranging from three years old all the way up to 18 years old. So basically the whole spectrum of uh, from children all the way to the youth. Uh, so for toddlers up until the primary, we use the Montessori method of education and for the secondary student, uh, that means from Form 1 all the way to Form 5, they actually follow the Cambridge syllabus. Uh, apart from that, uh, we also provide skills training. That means like FNB or hair cutting, sewing through our transformational enterprise. Dignity also works with refugees in Malaysia and as we know, access to public services like education was already a challenge for many refugees here. So how has the COVID-19 pandemic further compounded this issue? So as for the refugees living in Malaysia, most of them do not have a conducive home environment 
they don't have the right gadget or they don't have the Wi-Fi, learning can be extra challenging for them. Uh, even for Malaysian, we already having all of these um, challenges. What more for this group of people, for the children and for the youth, uh, and for the skill classes as well, because we providing these skills classes, it is almost impossible to take place virtually. And with this situation as well, the tension and the stress also increase because the parents who have lost their job and this can cause a direct impact on their children as they sometimes can unleash their frustration to them or even to, to being abusive to the children. So with the lost job also, some of the parents, the children need to drop out of school too because they need to go out of to work to, to provide for the family. So yeah, this has been very uh, difficult for the children, for the refugee. So how did the MCO, you know, the lockdowns affect refugee students' access to education? So uh, for the student, they are, most of them are very dependent on learning face-to-face. So when the, when the MCO was imposed on, uh, on us last year, most of the home of the children only have one phone or to no phone at all. And there is no extra budget for the kids at home. So that really have affected their access to education too. They can't learn at all. And what more if there are more than one child at home? It's even more difficult because one kid needs to attend another classroom online and then another kids need to attend another classroom online. So that have been uh, a challenge for all the family. And apart from that, if you have the gadget, then how do you access all of it? You need to have data. And that also, this, the parents need to have money to, to purchase all of this. And which is a bit more difficult for them because a lot of them have lost their job. So the MSO have really, it's really affected their access to learning. Mm, it is a real tragedy. Um, but Dignity, with the support of UNHCR, have implemented a program called the Community Classroom to help improve the situation, right? So tell me about this. How did it come about in the first place? So like the Community Classroom was initiated by Dignity. So when the MCO was imposed last year, we came together and said, we need to do something about this. We can't just ignore everyone. I mean, I mean the students that do not have access to this, uh, to education. So in hope that the children will continue to learn. Though the schools are closed, they should be able to continue to learn. Uh, think perhaps for the student that is already are studying in Dignity or any other school for that matter, they still have some access to school. But how about the students that are not in school at all? And we know there are. Majority of the children are refugee, but we do have some undocumented and underprivileged children that are here in Kuala Lumpur and also in Penang. So we recruited mothers or women mainly to open their home and turn it into a classroom where they actually welcome the student at their home or online to learn using the curriculum that is provided by Dignity. 
So how exactly are classes carried out? You know, what curriculum does it follow and how are students assessed? So just to give you some background, Dignity have been operating education program for more than 22 years and have through the years developed uh, in-house over 200 workbook focusing on numeracy and also literacy. So for the community classroom program, we use this workbook to train in to train in community educators or we also call them as facilitators who in turn will teach the children in their respective communities so the classes are conducted online uh, you know throughout this mco and all that but when it's when we are allowed the facilitators open their home for the children to to learn at their home so like what I mentioned earlier, it's all developed in-house, in dignity. Uh, we follow Montessori curriculum and some Cambridge IGCSE curriculum as well. So the students are assessed after completion of each series before they can progress further. So when we develop the material in dignity, we develop it in series. So after each series, the student will be assessed from that. So you see at the back of each our workbook, there are an assessment checklist where the facilitator actually can look and check each of the skill that they need to have before they can progress. So these are mostly like a formative assessment that can help the teacher to know if you should uh, move on to the next, series or they should stay and continue with these skills or should they go back to the previous skills and improve their foundation more. Uh, on top of that, we also have termly assessment that will be conducted as well every three months. All right. I'd like to talk a bit more about the community educators that you mentioned earlier. You said they are mostly women. So how did you get them together for this project? You know, how do you train and work with them exactly? So the community educators are actually leaders that we identify in their communities. Not all of them are trained as teachers, but they are nonetheless very qualified. Uh, they hold professional degrees, but do not do what they were trained for because they are here in Malaysia as a refugee. So what we did is that in the beginning of the project, we advertised and they came in, we conducted a, we conducted interview for them. And after that, we provided them with training before we actually started the program. And then on top of that, we do weekly training with the community educators that takes place online. So every Friday, I actually meet with them uh, to just to go through the weekly workbook to make sure that the, they understand sufficiently uh, before they start the new week. So on top of that, just going through how are they feeling, how is their classes going on and all that. So it's just like a staff meeting for all of us. So, and then also just going through all the relevant link and the workbook. Uh, I uploaded them on Google Docs so that they actually, I mean, all the link are in a Google Doc so that they can access it and use it in their classroom. 
So how has the community classroom program grown since it was first implemented back in March 2020? You know, what would you count as your achievement so far? So in the beginning of the program, we actually targeted 10 classrooms to, to start off. Now we actually have the 10 classrooms with over 300 students and the 10 facilitators that we have at 10 locations around Klang Valley and one in Penang. So we are very happy that we achieved the goal that we have set in the beginning. We have also trained another 180 teachers who are able to run community education center in here in Kuala Lumpur, uh, in Klang Valley, Terengganu, Kedah, Pahang, Penang, Johor, and Malacca. And that benefiting over 600 students. Uh, so we provided them with the, the workbook and also the video lessons uh, for everyone. So we conducted the training for them. And then after that, we give them the materials to, to run the education program. And in addition to that, we also train one of the Orang Asli from Postanao. This are uh, a kampung near Slim River, Perak. So we pack the workbook and then laptops with the video lesson. Uh, we purchase stationery for her and to start the community classroom in her village too. So that has been going on as well. So we are very proud of her. She have come in dignity, very shy and like a timid girl, and now she actually went back there and contributed back to her, to her kampung. Mm, such a great story. Um, but it's also been a tough time for everyone. So education aside, how does the community classroom hope to support students' mental health and psychosocial well-being? So continuing to connect with and educate the poor can be, we can consider that almost as important as food and health supplies because it really allowed the children in the youth to maintain some sort of purpose in them, some sort of normalcy, rhythm. And it can be a place where they can express socially and in, in a good way. Because it had been like very disruptive, like what you mentioned just now. But if there are any serious cases in which the student like need help or need some sort of intervention, the facilitator actually will alert the dignity team. And we have, we have a team here, welfare team, who can provide counselling and intervention as well. Uh, on top of that, we have planned actually some workshop where we can conduct uh, some socio-emotional learning for the student and also some workshop for mothers, some workshop for fathers and the youth in the community that we are working with. And Fadlin, what are your plans moving forward for the community classroom? You know, do you have do you hope to expand it even further? So we would like to set up more community classroom, of course. We hope to add another five more classes around West Malaysia. And I'm actually from Pitasaba. So I would really like to bring these materials over there too. Uh, I hope that the people in the rural area would have access to this quality education. Uh, we also hope that more Orangasli village will be open up for us, just like the girl that I mentioned earlier, so that they too would have access to the education during this difficult time, during this MCO. Our hope is that the Orangasli would run their own education program in the future, you know, like a school for the Orangasli by the Orangasli. 
So that would be something amazing to witness. Mm. And uh, lastly, if the public would like to help or get involved in the community classroom, how can they best do that? Besides helping our students to get online with devices and data, Dignity is working very hard to put all the resources online. And we need new skills like animation for our materials. We work, I mean, we learn all of this while doing it so that we can provide for the student. All this uh, really have stretched our current limited resources. And we hope that the public will join us uh, by contributing as we look into this new skill and also the work that we have to do. So aside from the community classroom, public also can support dignity work through our child sponsorship. Or you can also visit our transformational enterprise. We have EREX, CAREX, no, uh, SOEX, but of course now it's MCO, so we are closed, except you can order online for EREX. <laughs> Look us up on uh, Facebook or Instagram. Uh, you can search Dignity for Children. Or if you want to know more, actually, you can visit our website uh, at www.dignityforchildren.org for more information. All right. Thank you so much, Fadlin. So we were just speaking to Fadlin Linsai, the project coordinator of the Community Classroom, and that's a program run by local NGO Dignity for Children Foundation, or Dignity as they're more commonly known. And this program is run with the support of UNHCR. Mm, and I think for me, you know, the COVID-19 crisis has revealed how interconnected and interdependent the world is and that no one is safe until everyone is safe. Mm. You know, UN member states, which includes Malaysia, have pledged to adopt the 2030 sustainable uh, goals, which also include the pledge to ensure no one will be left behind and also to, quote-unquote, endeavour to reach the furthest behind first. Mm. So access to educa education surely must be a priority for everyone living in Malaysia and this includes the refugee children here. Yeah, so hopefully the crisis has also shown that everyone can make a difference and that people and communities everywhere will continue to come together in a show of human solidarity and kindness in tackling the impact of this pandemic, which is so um, widespread and so it's so long term I think it could potentially be so um, we can all play a part in that's helping right. those um, furthest behind uh, like you said Suen. Um that's all the time that we have for the show today um, do tweet us your thoughts uh, at BFM Radio or WhatsApp us at 018-789-8899 The Bigger Picture team would love to hear from you so um, you can visit our Facebook page BFM The Bigger Picture if you'd like to drop us a message directly over there and uh, if you missed any part of the show you can download podcasts on bfm.my slash daily digest on our bfm app or on your usual podcast platforms coming up after the three o'clock news hazro ashraf will be speaking to illustrator sharifa nadira about her book recalling forgotten tastes and it tells a visual story of some plants that are central to the orang asli's culture and way of life in selangor and negeri sembilan it's a lovely book so i think the conversation will be equally interesting as well um before we go though we wanted to leave you with this clip featuring Bahati Anastin, a refugee from Rwanda living in Kenya, who is a UN volunteer serving with the UNHCR. She's also a nurse working on the front lines of the COVID-19 pandemic response. And here she is sharing why she feels education can change lives for the better. My name is Bahati Anastin. I live in Kenya and have lived here for the past 24 years as a refugee. 
My parents fled our homeland, Rwanda, when I was just a few weeks old. And all I have known as home is Kenya. I am representing the 1% of refugee youth who have access to tertiary education. A lot of refugees like myself have been empowered to contribute to the response on COVID-19. I see very many youth involved in bridging the gap between passing the messages about coronavirus and how the communities can protect themselves to the refugee communities, acknowledging that there is a great barrier in terms of language, in terms of literacy. And by doing this, refugee youth find themselves through education in a position to fill the gap, to aid their communities. I would like on this day to urge us all to sit and think about refugees. How are they doing? What are they eating? For the students, how are they learning? For those who are working, how are they paying their rent? As we think about this, let us think about how much change education can make and how much power education can give towards making a change for all of us. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.